You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, You'll never guess what anti-vaxxers are swallowing now. Bleach didn't quite do the trick. Horse paste didn't do the trick either. What's the new cure? The new miracle cure? Christopher Key has the answer. Christopher Key is not a doctor. Christopher Key is a dangerous lunatic. He's an anti-vaccine conspiracy theorist who travels the country in a car full of weapons, including a flamethrower. He carries a fake badge and claims he has the authority to arrest Democratic governors who impose vaccine mandates. In a sane country, a citizen wouldn't be able to own a flamethrower or keep it in his car and cross state lines, and someone like Key would be institutionalized. But we don't live in a sane country. And looking at the news from around the world these days, it hardly seems like anybody does. Anyway, the Daily Beast posted a video yesterday of Key speaking to a group of anti-vaxxers. I guess I should say the Daily Beast reposted this video since Key himself originally posted it to his own Telegram account, and it is still up. So this isn't dirt the Beast dug up. Key wants this out there. He wants you to hear this. He wants everyone to know about his miracle cure for COVID. And not just COVID. If you're vaccinated because you live in a state with a Democratic governor that imposed a vaccine mandate and your governor hasn't been arrested yet, Key's miracle cure for COVID is also going to cure you of the vaccine that you need curing from. Let's go to the audio that Key was anxious for all of us to hear. But the antidote, I'm going to kill my credibility. What credibility do I have anyway? So hey, um, the antidote that we've seen now, and we have tons and tons of research, is urine therapy. Okay, and I know to a lot of you, a lot of you, this sounds crazy, but guys, God's given us everything we need. This has been around for centuries. Um, We've got research after research, documented, peer-reviewed, published papers on urine. We do. We have this. Okay, but they have been doing for the last nine months now, and what he has right now is all antidotal because, again, you know. To put together a randomized double-blind placebo study with this is, is, is kind of tough. Urine. Urine therapy. Urine. It's been around for centuries. We have the data, Key says. We have the research. There have been papers published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. But he admits that no one has actually taken the time to put together a randomized double-blind placebo study on this, which means research hasn't been done and no papers have been published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Just so we're clear, what exactly does Key mean by this, by urine therapy? Not urine aromatherapy. He's not talking about urine-scented candles or urine crystals. Let's go back to that tape Key wanted us to hear. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not telling anybody to drink their own urine, but I drink my own urine. I've done drink my own urine for the last 23 years, and I'm still alive. Turns out we've been pissing away the cure this whole time. And what more proof do we need than this one creepy piss drinker is still alive after 23 years of drinking his own piss? And I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that it's not just his piss he's been drinking this whole time. And 23 years, that is a long time. And we're more than two years into this pandemic, which by itself is enough time to pull together the kind of study 
he would have us believe is just too complicated to pull together or impossible when it comes to piss to pull together for some reason. You know, the kind of randomized double-blind placebo studies that they've used to test the efficacy of the vaccines that are actually saving people's lives, unlike Key's piss. Scientists somehow managed to put those tests together for the vaccine in less than a year. Randomized. All that means is that you assign study participants at random to either the experimental group that gets the experimental treatment or the control group that does not. All double-blind means is that the researchers conducting the study don't know who's in which group, experimental or control, and neither do the people in those groups. And a placebo? Not that hard to get your hands on either, particularly when you're talking about piss. If you're testing a new pill, the experimental group gets the pill, the actual medicine, and the control group gets a substitute, a sugar pill, something inert. In this case, the experimental group gets piss to drink, and the control group gets a placebo. So not piss to drink. Budweiser, Mountain Dew, Country Time Lemonade, putting together a randomized double-blind placebo study for drinking piss or drinking bleach or eating horse dew warmer, not that hard. For the cost of a flamethrower and a fake badge, you could put a small piss study together. That Key hasn't put that study together tells us everything we need to know about Key, everything else we need to know about Key, everything we didn't want to know about Key. He doesn't know if drinking piss keeps him healthy and he doesn't want to know whether it has anything to do with why he's still alive after 23 years because he doesn't want to stop. And that's fine. That is fine. There is nothing wrong with drinking piss for fun. I don't have any problem with piss drinkers. I'm not picking a fight with the piss drinking community. But I like my perverts like I like my politicians. Honest. And Key is a dishonest pervert. This piss drinker is out there trying to convince people to drink piss instead of getting vaccinated, which is fine, I guess, too. People who aren't vaccinated by this point, people who would sit in a room at a super spreader event with Christopher Key and his flamethrower probably are never going to get vaccinated anyway. Let them drink piss. For all I care, they can drown in it. All right, speaking of honest perverts, an honest group of cuckold bloggers, cuckold podcasters, and cuckold educators have declared January 25th through January 31st to be Cuck Week. So to honor Cuck Week, we're going to have a couple of superstar guests on the show, Dr. David Lay, author of Insatiable Wives, Women Who Stray, and The Men Who Love Them, and Venus from the Venus Cuckoldress podcast, both coming back on the show for Cuck Week. If you have a question about cuckold relationships, being in one or wanting to get in one, Get your cut questions into us now, and we will feature your cut question during our Cuck Week show. All right, coming up on this week's show on the micro, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum version of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love. Sex researcher and frequent Savage Lovecast guest, Dr. Debbie Herbenick from Indiana University, comes back on the show to share more of her research into choking during sex. All that coming up on today's show. Hi. So I am a transgender man, very happily married to another man in a, uh, you know, what we consider to be a gay relationship. So this is, uh, the problem is I started my medical transition in 2020. And in October, I finally came out to my mother who had an enormously bad reaction to it, including sending very, very painful comments via text and email, including if you changed, if I changed my name, it would kill her. Uh, which December 6th, my mother suddenly died. And so now I have to figure out whether or not when I go to the funeral, it's going to be a few months 
later because we want to be able to have it outside. Do I go by the name I'm using, you know, legally and in my personal life and actually professionally now too? Or do I respect, you know, my mom's last wishes, which were, you know, the way she related to me were quite painful, but we never had the chance to work it out. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. You came out to your mother. She had a negative reaction, which a lot of parents do when their queer kids come out to them. But most of our parents eventually come around. So I would encourage you, rather than regarding your mom's tantrum, the way she reacted, the way she lashed out, rather than regarding that as her her last wishes, regard it as her first impulse. And as is often the case with the parents of queer kids, those first reactions, those initial reactions when they're negative, are where that parent starts, not where that parent ends. When I came out to my mother, the first thing, one of the first things she asked me to do was to not bring or never bring. These days it's fuzzy. I can't quite remember clearly, but I wasn't allowed to bring a boyfriend to the house because that would have made it too real. My mom could interact with my sister's boyfriend and not see all the blowjobs that my sister was giving her boyfriend. But my boyfriend, that was different. My sister's boyfriend, that could lead to marriage and kids, my mom said when we had a confrontation about it. But my boyfriend led only to blowjobs. So she could ignore the blowjobs she knew her daughter might be giving, but she couldn't ignore the blowjobs that she knew I was giving. And that was something we fought about. And I loved my mother. We were really close. We were cliche close. We fought about that. I can imagine how much pain I would have been in if that's where our relationship had ended. If my mom, after I had come out to her as gay, had suddenly died and I was left to sit with that, that initial reaction, if that, that's all I had, if we hadn't progressed. But I think, I hope, what I eventually would have come to is what I'm encouraging you to come to, is to give your mom some credit on faith, that she would have gotten to a place where she loved and accepted you, in part because you would have stood your ground with her about being the man you are, about having the name that you have. And she would have, as so many parents of queer kids do, in time come around, perhaps in time apologized to you for that first negative reaction, for the way she lashed out for the tantrum that she had. So... I guess I'm asking you to do what I hope I would have had the strength to do. And I'm not sure I would have had the strength to do if my mom had dropped dead the day after I'd come out to her or shortly after I'd come out to her and assume that that's not the point where she would have ended up if she'd had more time. And instead of, and it doesn't sound like you're angry with your mother particularly, but instead of being angry with your mother about who she was at that moment, find it in yourself to love your mother for who you know in your heart or hope in your heart she would have become if she'd had more time. And in that spirit, I think you go to your mother's memorial service as the person you are, as the gender you are, with the name that you have, not out of respect for your mom's tantrum, for that initial negative reaction. You don't have to respect that. That wasn't her last wish. That was her first impulse. And rather than round your mother down, to the worst possible thing a parent can do or say when their kid comes out to them, I think you should round your mother up to 
the person that she was capable of being and would have become the mom she was. I'm sure she loved you at times, unconditionally, as a parent should. And even though she had a negative reaction when you came out to her as trans, give her credit for maybe being able to get there again. Give her the benefit of that doubt and go to her memorial service as yourself. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old bi trans male who lives on the East Coast. And I guess to preface this, I have not been in good relationships for most of my life. I was in an abusive relationship for five years. The few years after I got out of that, I had strings of one-off dates and not flings, but short encounters that really just kind of fizzled out or didn't do it for me. After that, I was in an intensely traumatic situation with moving in with a manipulative ex into a place that was quite literally a hellhole. I've now been in a relationship for half a year with a girl who's been nothing but sweet to me. She's always kind. She's always sweet and she was probably one of the biggest tethers of my sanity when I was moving into a new place that was not so stressful. And she really was one of the key people who helped me escape my hostile living situation. It's nothing about her. She's been nothing but kind and nothing but sweet to me. But I feel like I can't feel love now without also feeling terrified and I don't know if that's normal. I don't know if that's a result of just having been through so many traumatic situations to do with love that my body just has some fear response or just shuts down and it makes me feel like a broken person. I don't know how normal that is and I don't know how normal it is for me to feel terror mixed with love and I guess I just want advice about that from someone who possibly knows more about the situation. Is it normal to feel terrified when you feel love? Is it normal to feel that terror even when you're with someone who has done nothing but make you happy? It's scary to love someone and it's scary to let someone love you. You really have to expose yourself to another human being to be truly and intimately loved. And if you've had life experiences, if you've had experiences in past relationships where someone exploited you, where someone leveraged your willingness to open yourself to them, to, to make yourself vulnerable to them, to weaponize it against you, to manipulate you and abuse you, that can make you love shy in the future. And you can return to a feeling, you know, you can begin to associate the feeling of love and its attendant feelings of vulnerability with the terror that the person who abused you inflicted on you. So while I want to say it's not normal to feel the way that you do, of course it is understandable that you with your past experiences might feel that way. And anybody who doesn't have those sorts of experiences will sometimes contemplate uh, what it means to love and be loved and be able to identify how terrifying that can be. 
you love someone, they leave the house, there's a chance they'll never come back because shit can happen, particularly shit during pandemics. But, you know, bus accidents, traffic accidents happen and random shootings happen. And it's just, it's scary to really open yourself up to someone, uh, to let them occupy such a large part of your heart. Because if that person is ripped out of your heart by circumstance, well, that's horrible to, 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 to think about what that moment and what your life after that moment is going to be like. Also horrifying to think about is allowing someone to take residence in your heart that way to occupy a big part of your heart and your emotional inner life. And then they start slashing away at you. They're inside you and they're terrifying you and abusing you. And in a way you feel not complicit in your own abuse, but you let them in. You were conned, you were tricked by an abuser into letting them pretend that they loved you so that they could access the most vulnerable parts of you and destroy them. So yeah, it's perfectly understandable that you would, given your experiences, be terrified to let someone in again. That is something I think anybody who hasn't had your life experiences can empathize with because there are always those moments where you think about what it would be like if not to be abused by someone you loved, but for the universe to abuse you by taking someone you loved from you. And there's terror there because you've made yourself so vulnerable to that person by loving them, by opening your heart to them, but also then to the howling void that will open up if that person suddenly blips out of existence. So I feel you. I do. I can understand the terror. Anybody should be able to understand the terror. What you don't want and what you're currently struggling with, it sounds like, is that you are paralyzed by that terror, that it's interfering with your ability to let someone fully into your life again who isn't abusive, who loves and supports you, who is good for you and wants to do good things with, for, and to you. And that means the people who abused you in the past are interfering with your ability to be in the moment now and be loved now by a better person now. And I hope that me just rambling on about this a little bit helps, but what you're really going to need is therapy. You're really going to need to speak with a counselor at great length about your trauma so that you can learn to live with it, contain it so that it becomes a scar. It will always mark you. But a scar is not an open, seeping wound. And if you're unable to feel any peace or security in this relationship now, if you just obsess and dwell on the risk, the danger, the fear, the terror, the vulnerability, the terrible things that could happen if this person isn't who they say they are, isn't who they pretended to be, or if this person is suddenly taken from you, uh, yeah, that means you need help processing, working through your trauma, and then learning how as most of us are capable of doing containing your trauma, containing your fear, knowing it's there, being able to see it. Sometimes, you know, we can't help but think about it. And then, and this is the skill that I think that you lack and with a good therapist, you could adopt and, and perfect the ability then to set that fear and terror aside and get on with your life and enjoy the person who's in your life right now, who loves you and is capable of loving you and that you, with some help, will be capable of loving back. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. Calling from Ontario, Canada. And 
I have a question for you in relation to foreign consumption for teenagers. I have 14-year-old twins, and my son, I believe, is consuming pornography. I wish that he wasn't, but I'm not naive. I think that it won't ever happen, and so I was listening to your last episode and thought it would be reasonable to give a call to see if we could make a recommendation to age-appropriate pornography. I don't have any recommendations for age-appropriate pornography. Porn is pretty subjective, and the porn that might be appropriate for one particular 14-year-old who's mature may be inappropriate for another 14-year-old who's immature. And porn that may be to the taste of a mature-ish 14-year-old may not be to the taste of some other mature-ish 14-year-old kid. Your kid or your kids with the access they have at this moment to basically all the pornography in the world are going to determine for themselves what they want to watch, what they want to access. That's scary. Instead of thinking about what might be age-appropriate porn choices that you can impose on your children, which you can't do, what you need to be thinking about are the age-appropriate conversations you need to have with your kids about pornography. You need to get in between your kids and the porn that they're looking at or may choose to look at so that they understand that porn isn't real life and that what they see in porn isn't what will be expected of them necessarily when they become sexually active and isn't what they should expect of their partners when they become sexually active. And that there is a enormous continuum of sexual activities that sexually mature adults engage in. And what porn tends to show is the slamming and banging and gaping and holes and fucking and sometimes more extreme things And they need to understand that that's not what most people do when most people are having sex. And if they want to do some of those things, that the really extreme things people tiptoe up to and take baby steps and work their way towards. And the problem a lot of young people are having who watch a lot of pornography and then go into partnered sex assuming that they are going to have to perform like porn stars or have a right to expect that their just as young and inexperienced new partner will or must perform for them like a porn star – is just how that trips people up and potentially traumatizes them. Those are the conversations you need to have with your kids about porn. Get in between the porn they're looking at and them. Make sure that they're viewing it, because they're going to view it anyway, critically. One of the most important things I think you can say to young people about porn is that there's a lot of anger mixed into it, a lot of misogyny mixed into porn, that some people are watching porn because – They're frustrated that the people they wish would sleep with them won't sleep with them. So they want to see the kinds of people they desire punished sexually. And they don't want to succumb to that stuff. They don't want to be infected by that kind of anger because it's going to ruin them for, you know, paradoxically succumbing to that kind of anger in porn if you're exposed to it early and you you drink it in will make you more likely to be the kind of person that no one wants to sleep with when you're an adult because those attitudes are repulsive and people, potential future sex partners, won't feel safe with them if they go into sex either feeling that kind of anger with their sex partners or performing it because that's what they've seen in pornography. 
There's also a question I think you should put to your kid about the porn that you know he's been watching. And it's a simple one. What do you think happened before they turned the cameras on? The answer, of course, is obvious, but it's often a eureka moment for the kid who's been watching porn. They had a conversation. They talked about what they were going to do. If it's professional pornography and not amateur porn dashing around the internet, they may have spelled out what they were going to do in literally a contract that was signed or a beat sheet, you know, an outline of the scene that was sent to the performers in advance so they could review it and decide whether or not they wanted to appear in this film at all or work with this studio or work with this other performer at all. And getting into your kid's head that what's portrayed in porn as spontaneous, as stuff that just happens, isn't spontaneous, isn't the stuff that just happens. The pros that they're watching, having sex and pornography, negotiate. They talk about it. They work it out in advance. And if things aren't working, if they aren't feeling it, if it's not pleasurable, they stop and the cameras stop and then they edit that out. And then it looks like there's no stopping and starting during sex. It looks like no one ever withdraws their consent when in reality, and you should say this to your kid as an adult who's been sexually active, in reality, people withdraw their consent all the time and the sex stops. And when they're filming the sex, the filming stops. And then you talk some more, maybe you resume or you decide you don't want to be sexual with this person again tonight or again ever. These are the sorts of things you need to talk with your kids about sex. You got to be realistic. You're realistically not going to be able to decide for your kid what age appropriate quote unquote porn that he watches or doesn't get to watch. What you want to do is make sure that when your kid is watching porn and he's going to watch porn, that he's thinking critically and he's not succumbing to, you know, a basket full of deplorable narrative or tropes that are going to shape his expectations about what sex is going to be when he starts to have partnered sex. Expectations that if he enters partnered sex with pornified expectations, he's going to spend a lot of time having to unlearn and may in the process wind up traumatizing people he cared about girls and women he wanted to be with. It's going to be an awkward conversation. It's going to be a conversation that your kid wishes you weren't having with him. And you're going to have to just power through and have that conversation with him anyway. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I've been married to a man for 20 years. Our sex is fantastic. It is wanton. It's animalistic. It's instinctive. And I love it. My husband is also very affectionate. He plays with my hair, he rubs my feet, and I love it. He is loving and he is caring. And I would be delighted if I could transition from this affection to lovemaking. But for me, sex is animalistic. It's instinctual. I come, I come hard. And so any transition from affection to sex is abrupt. It's an abrupt change of tone, so much so that the two are almost in conflict. Ironically, my husband being kind, gentle, giving and loving is almost a recipe for not having sex or it needs to end abruptly so that we can transition to something else. I'd like your advice, Dan, on how I can try to bring myself to a place where affection and gentle, gentleness are not the antithesis to sexual activity. 
it's as if these two extraordinarily important aspects of our relationship exist on different planes. And maybe it's not necessary to marry them. But I wouldn't mind some tips for how to try to do so. Seeing as nothing is broke here, I'm going to resist the urge to try and fix it. And I would encourage you to do the same. You've been together with your husband for 20 years and the sex was and remains, still is, fantastic, to use your word, animalistic, instinctive. And there's a lot of physical affection in the relationship, a lot of the rubbing of feet, a lot of the stroking of hair. There's just a real difference, a real dichotomy between when you're being casually intimate and tender and when you're having sex. Now, it might be nice. You might enjoy. This might be what you're asking. How do you can transition organically from the tender rubbing of feet and stroking of hair to the animalistic, instinctive throwing around? And I don't know how you do that. I don't know why, considering that everything is working and nothing is broken here, you would even want to try. This sounds to me like the vanilla version of a DS, DOM-sub, BDSM relationship where the SM sex is highly formal, very ritualized, very clear roles. And that DS dynamic doesn't, for those couples, inform, you know, just when they're laying around on the couch watching television for the most part. And so for a lot of those couples who are into DS or BDSM, there is a clear dividing line. There's a moment when the SM sex begins, where a collar is put on or somebody gets on their knees, but there is a, a starting shot. Seems to me that you have kind of the vanilla but animalistic and instinctive equivalent of that sort of dynamic, where there's who you are and how you treat each other when it's a down moment and you're just being tender and affectionate. And then there's who you are and how you treat each other when you're having sex. And those exist in stark relief. And rather than trying to resolve that tension between those two dynamics, I think you should revel in that tension between those two dynamics. And rather than trying to unwind it or merge them somehow, I think you should allow them or continue to allow them to be what they are, separate and distinct, because that works for you guys clearly. 20 years together, still having tremendous sex. 20 years together, still physically affectionate and tender and kind. Yeah, nothing is broke. Stop trying to fix this. Lean into it. Hey, Dan. Hetero woman here. I'm interested in working with a partner, you know, working my way up with a male partner to pegging. And I'm a long way from throwing pegging on the table because I haven't even done any kind of butt play with a dude before. I haven't even been able to put my finger in a dude's ass, which is the most basic entry level, literally, I guess, act of this to, to kind of like <laughs> work your way up to pegging. And the reason I haven't done that is because it grosses me out, which I know is stupid and silly and juvenile, but it does. It grosses me out. The idea of having my finger have something on it Blech. It's just like, it's not, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. So I'm wondering, even though that's absurd and I recognize that, if an option might be to put something over my finger before I put it in a dude's ass, something like a condom, something that's lubed, a glove, you know, obviously uh, that I'm comfortable with. I don't know if that's an okay thing to 
kind of ask somebody or if it's offensive. And yes, I can use my words. I'm happy to use my words, but I don't want to use them in a way, I don't want to use them and then have that kind of be offensive to somebody. Or maybe this is something that people actually do. Maybe I'm not the only one who's afraid of getting her hands dirty. There are guys out there who are dying to be pegged. I think you gotta crawl before you walk and you gotta walk before you run. You're not gonna wanna go right from never having even fingered some dude's ass to pegging some dude's ass. You have to learn your way around ass. Ass takes time. You have to be gentle with ass. You have to do a lot of anal foreplay. Uh, Eating of ass, I think, is great anal foreplay. Someone who doesn't want to put her finger in somebody's butt lest it come out dirty or smelly. And it's going to come out, even if it's clean, smelling a little bit like ass. So you might want to get used to how ass smells and develop some sort of taste for how ass smells before you put your finger or tongue in there. But there are lots of guys out there who want to get pegged. You can find one of those guys and work your way up to pegging. Use your fingers, use smaller toys, use vibrators, uh, use pressure on the outside of the anus, sort of laid across the anus. I think it's a really terrific thing to take uh, you know, a long kind of dildo-shaped vibrator and instead of trying to shove it in somebody's ass, lay it across his asshole and taint so he can begin to associate, assuming he's as inexperienced as you are, anal stimulation with pleasure. He should have a whole bunch of orgasms with just a finger in him or just a vibrator laid across his asshole or just your tongue in his ass if you can go there. And then get that strap-on dildo. Work your way up to that strap-on dildo. None of this is addressing your question. Can you put a condom on your finger before you put it in a guy's ass? Yeah, of course. Can you have a box of surgical gloves next to your bed that you put on before you begin digging around in some dude's ass? Yes, of course. That might put off some guys. They might think, oh, you're treating my ass like it's something dirty, you know, and often guys' asses are something dirty. So it's a legitimate way, I think, to approach an asshole, particularly if it's somebody who's inexperienced with being penetrated and doesn't quite know how to douche yet or hasn't started douching or doesn't want to douche and isn't regular and getting enough fiber in his diet. So you might encounter something. Yeah, put a glove on. And there are guys out there, just like there are guys out there who went to pegging and will volunteer to be the person you learn on and with. There are guys out there who are into medical play, who are into surgical gloves. This thing that you're afraid to introduce into sex or to bring up in advance of sex, you may find if you just throw it out there on your kink personal ad or whatever it is you're going to find a guy into pegging, if you throw it out there, you will attract the attention of guys for whom the surgical gloves aren't an insult, aren't an impediment, aren't a boner killer or a libido killer, but actually make them even hornier to get with you and to let you dig around in there. <laughs> the digging around, it sounds so gross to put it that way, to let you explore their assholes in the way that you are comfortable, at least for the moment, in exploring some dude's asshole, which is gloved up. Hi, Dan. 30-year-old woman calling in from the Netherlands. A bit more than a year ago, I started doing sex work. So far, it's been one of the most fun and interesting jobs I ever did, and also a life-enriching experience. I'm very happy about it, and at least for now, I want to pursue this career further. I want to be open about my work as much as possible. However, I don't share this information too too publicly, since sex work is very stigmatized, and at this point, I might might not want that stigma attached to my name everywhere and forever. 
It may interfere with future op- job opportunities in other fields, and also my family doesn't know about it. When I do tell my friends or new acquaintances about my work, these conversations are emotionally very demanding, even if their reaction turns out okay, but of course more so when it doesn't. A friend of mine who is gay compared my experience to coming out as queer, and I guess that makes sense, even though there are differences as well. Both are about personal and sexual freedom, and as such, they have been taboo subjects and the people concerned have been stigmatized. People tend to have strong moralistic opinions about both. Sometimes when I talk to people about my profession, I notice they are not really listening to me as a person. Rather, I come to represent their own ideas about sex work or prostitution. Every time I meet people, I have to make a choice between hiding an an important part of myself or starting a risky conversation that can leave me tumbled and hurt for the rest of the day. I especially struggle with hiding from my family. It gives me a lot of stress to hide such a big part of my life from them. But on the other hand, when me and my ex-partner came out to my parents as polyamorous, they almost got a heart attack. It was a bad experience for all of us, and I think they are very far from understanding my sexuality. I was wondering if there are any suggestions, best practices, advice or resources from the LGBTQ community as to how I choose to hide or tell and how to cope with the consequences of both options. I definitely think there are parallels in the gay experience and doing sex work, being a sex worker, being a gay man, you're sometimes put in the position of having to come out to people. Now, I think a helpful distinction is the need to know distinction. When I came out to my family, when I told them I was gay, I kind of needed to tell them that because otherwise I was going to have to cut all of them out of my life entirely because I wasn't going to be able to hide who I was dating, who I was with, who I was in love with, or hide, conversely, who I wasn't dating, who I wasn't in love with, who I wasn't marrying and having children with. I wasn't going to be straight. I wasn't going to be dating women. And it put me in a position where I had to make a choice between lying to my family actively for the rest of my life and to facilitate the telling of that lie. It meant cutting them out of my life, right? You know, you couldn't let them in. You couldn't let them get too close. They would figure it out or find it out. And I chose to tell them because they needed to know. If they wanted to be a part of my life and in my life, I needed to tell them. And as hard as it was for some of them to hear, they were grateful in the end that I told them something they needed to know about me. Sex work. Does your family need to know? Well, for reasons that may be salient to you personally, they may need to know. You don't want to run around and hide this from them. It's an important part of your life. You have feelings about it. You'd like to be able to be open with your family about what you're doing now, how you're making a living now. Hiding a job, hiding your profession from family, not easy. Easier than hiding your sexual orientation or your life partner or your husband or wife and children from your family. But it's still difficult to hide that from your family. I think, though, it's easier, again, easier to hide that from your family. And it's not something, when you view it through the prism of need to know, that your family necessarily needs to know. Based on your family's reaction to you coming out as poly to them, they may not want to know it. And I think they telegraphed to you when they had that freak out about you and your, I think it was your former partner being poly, that they may not be entitled to know. They may not be people that you are safe sharing 
something about what you do for a living that also touches on, implicates, maybe too weird a word to use in this context, but implicates your sexuality and your sex practices. So, yeah, you don't need to tell your family. And your family kind of disqualified themselves from from being told. If you have friends, if you have support uh, from others, other people that you can go to when times are tough or the job is shitty that you can unload on, open up to, get support from, well, then maybe you don't need yourself to see your family doesn't need to know. You don't need to tell your family because you're getting that kind of support that other people might get from, you know, mom and dad about their stressful career. You're getting it from friends. Now you say sometimes you share this information about yourself. You share the fact that you're doing sex work, which can be stigmatized even in the Netherlands with friends. And then that leads to difficult, heavy lift conversations. You also say you share that with new acquaintances, which results in the same kind of heavy lift conversations. Again, there's a parallel. I remember coming out to people and having to deal with not who I was, not the gay man I was sitting in front of them, but their preconceptions about who all gay men were. Often I was coming out to people who'd never met a gay man before. This was like 30, 40 fucking years ago. And it was a lot to bear up under. It was a lot of emotional labor, as we might call it now, helping somebody unpack, work through, process, their fears, their prejudices about gay people and having to re-examine them because I wasn't the things they thought all gay people were. They didn't want to think badly of me because they knew me and liked me and yet they did think all gay people were terrible and yet they <laughs> like then I had to sit with them and hold their hands as they processed their complicated feelings about me and how I, by coming out to them as gay, had complicated their feelings about gay people. I had to do it for friends, close friends. I had to do it for family. They needed to know. I didn't have to do it for cab drivers. I didn't have to do it for somebody sitting next to me on an airplane who asked me if I was dating any young girls or asked me where my wife was if they noticed my wedding ring. But I chose to. I've chosen to. Because on some level, I enjoy those kinds of conversations. And I'm good at them. If you don't enjoy them, you don't have to have them with people you don't need to have them with. And I don't think acquaintances qualify. I don't think people you've just met are ever people who need to know or that you're obligated to tell or whose biases, prejudice about sex workers, it's your obligation or responsibility to confront, unpack, help them work through. That's not on you. Pick your battles. Also, as someone doing sex work who would rather not share this now or possibly ever with your family members, you got to be careful because that stigma and prejudice against sex workers is sometimes weaponized against people doing sex work. And malicious motherfuckers, sometimes former partners, sometimes acquaintances, sometimes former clients will out sex workers to their families. I know people who are doing sex work who are outed to their families by malicious piece of shit exes. I know people who are doing sex work who are outed to families uh, and blackmailed by clients. So be careful. Be careful. How many people that you aren't sure about, that you aren't sure you can trust. And in most cases, the sex workers I know who are outed to families 
had confided this in people they thought they could trust. You know, our judgment isn't always 100% on this score, but be careful about who you share this with and how broadly and widely you share it if it's not something you want to share with your family, you don't need to know, and hope to never share with your family. Hi, Dan. I'm an over 50 woman. You discuss choking and the popularity and how it can sometimes trigger some people. But I would love for you to have a larger conversation on your cast about this um, because I work with victims of domestic violence where strangulation is used as a power and control tool. I am very dismayed to see the popularity of quote, quote, choking in um, modern culture because if it's done in a bad way, it is incredibly scary to somebody. It's a felony offense in most of the states now. So obviously it needs a lot of communication and a lot of consent around this, but we see a trend where somebody will just say, well, she consented to it or he consented to it. So I would love for there to be more conversation about this almost epidemic of the choking phenomenon Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, a professor at the Indiana University School of Public Health, research scientist, sex educator, rival sex advice columnist, author of many important books, and frequent guest on the Savage Lovecast. Dr. Herbenick, thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me. So the caller thinks that there needs to be more conversation about choking. And she works with victims of domestic violence, as she said, and choking is often used as a tool of control. But you've been doing a lot of research into something that I think that the caller is curious about, the subject she raises, which is how ubiquitous it's become as a sex practice, as a as a kink. And for a lot of people, a kink they don't talk about before they attempt, because why? Why is this happening? Yeah. So, you know, choking, which is a form of strangulation, even though pretty much everybody calls it choking, has become incredibly mainstream and normative among um, young adults and even some older adolescents. And it's it's really challenging for those of us working in sex to figure out because we don't usually see too many sexual practices um, change this quickly. So become this popular, this quickly. Choking has become incredibly popular to the extent where we found that more than half of thousands of randomly sampled college students that we found have choked or been choked. Even among non-college students who are young adults, it seems to be incredibly prevalent, like around 40% of 18 to 24-year-old women having been choked um, during sex. And, you know, I think what's hard about it is because it's become so mainstream and normative, Many people are not talking about it and they're making assumptions, you know, that it's fine with the other person and it is with some people and it's not with other people. So we are seeing also a lot more choking as part of um, sexual assaults, both on and off college campuses. Now, I assume that choking wasn't suddenly introduced into abstinence education programs or high school sex ed programs as, hey, maybe instead of sex, you could choke each other out. So as much as I hate to pathologize porn, we've talked before about this. And the thing that seems to have mainstreamed as sexual practice is pornography, is internet porn. Yeah, I think it's a, a, a pretty fair assumption. Um that porn has been a big part of it. I don't think it's the only part. I think it probably started, you know, started um, the tide, if you will. Um, but over in recent years, what we've seen is a lot of people posting videos about choking on TikTok. There are a lot of 
um, like Twitter memes and, you know, memes that wind up on Facebook and other places, you know, about choking that really normalize it, that make it seem really sexy, that sometimes kind of grapple with the fact that, yes, people die sometimes when they're being choked. It's not common, but it happens from time to time. Um, and so I think there, you know, there's just a lot of sources. So when we interview young men about choking, when we ask, you know, their early memories about learning about it for the first time and, and learning how to do it and all of that, they, they routinely go back to pornography and they talk about seeing it in porn, not really a specific porn, you know, they're just sort of like, well, it's, it's all over porn. But when we ask young women where they remember learning about it, some of them talk about porn. Some of them talk about partners who watch porn. But they often talk about the TikTok videos and the, and the social media memes and friends and partners. A lot of them talk about um, learning about choking because like their first partner just choked them. And so, you know, so it's, it's pretty complicated, but you're right. I mean, it's not part of sex education. It's part of a variety of media sources. And most of these media sources are presenting really inaccurate, unhelpful ways of going about choking. For example, making it sound as if as long as you choke on the sides, it's safe. And that's just not true. I mean, you can still kill somebody accidentally by choking them on the sides. Um, but more commonly, what you're doing is just cutting off blood flow to the brain. And the blood has oxygen, it has glucose, it has all these really important things to keep our brains really healthy. So what I think we in public health who study this issue are, are more concerned about is that there may be, you know, over time, increases in, um, you know, things like depression, anxiety, which some of our research shows, you know, it might even be other things that we would expect from like repeated cutting off of blood flow to the brain, things like recurrent headaches or ringing in the ears and other health issues. And then, you know, the issue that this caller raises is really important too. And we don't know the answer to it yet, but strangulation is often used as a form of coercive control to make people scared and sort of put them more under your, under your thumb, if you will. And so we don't know yet, but we think it's really important to learn to what extent, like if you are, you know, choked over time, even if it's something you want or you accept or you sort of go along with, at some point, do you feel like less powerful in your relationship? And you, we don't know. I mean, you might not. You might feel more powerful, but, but we don't know because it's such a new shift in sexual behavior. You know, the caller says that as a sex act, as opposed to as a, an act of violence or abuse in a relationship, it's something that requires a lot of communication and consent. And you can throw a lot of communication and consent at this. There's still that small, ever-present risk of death. But if it's porn that's the problem, it seems to me that, you know, just setting aside this choking phenomenon for a second, the conversation we need to have with people about porn, with young people about porn who are watching porn, is what happens before the cameras got turned on. If you say that to young people, okay, you watch this little bit of pornography, what happened do you think? Do you, what, what do you think happened before they started filming? It only takes a split second for that young person to go, I guess they had to talk about it, right? Because whatever happens in porn, like porn stars have contracts, porn stars engage in negotiations about the scenes that they're going to perform. And it doesn't take long for young people if you ask them to think about what happens the moment before or what was left out in the editing, they're going to land on they did talked about it. They had a conversation, they communicated. You know, it was consensual. And yet people have this attitude when it comes to sex that talking about it is going to ruin it, talking about it's going to make it not hot, that you're just supposed to like bust out moves without any conversation as if the porn they watched wasn't hot. 
even though it involved communication and consent. And and that's the missing piece. It's always like encouraging people to talk about it first because that whatever the sex you're having, it could be as vanilla as possible. If you didn't get consent, if you didn't communicate and one person is really not enjoying it or thought that their body language is saying they didn't want to do it and now it's happening, they're going to experience that as violence, as an assault, even if that wasn't your intent. And those are the zooming out from choking conversations that we need to have, but zooming into choking. Oh my God. I've always been really pro porn, pro sex work. And I just feel like this is putting me in a really uncomfortable position, the ongoing phenomenon of choking. And it's not just that, you know, there's a whole bunch of like mad chokers out there running around choking people during sex. A lot of people want to be choked during sex. I've had sexual encounters where somebody has put my hands around their throat and I don't have the luxury of choking them, even if it's what they want, because I know there's a small risk of death. I've talked about it on the show so often that I'll go to jail if shit goes south because I should have known better. Yeah. And so, yes, these are all important things, right? So people do need to understand more, more about pornography. Unfortunately, like the sex education in the United States is so messed up that, you know, it's, it's really difficult for people to get good like pornography literacy programs or just conversations about pornography in schools. And many parents aren't equipped to do that. Um, you know, choking is, is as somebody in public health has caught my attention because it is so consequential to health and can and does result in people dying. There was a recent study came out that like analyzed case reports of you know, BDSM related, what they call non-natural deaths, right? So non-natural deaths occurring during partner BDSM. And the vast majority of them occurred from manual strangulation, which is, hand, you know, choking with hands. This is another term for choking with hands. Um, and so, you know, so we do know that even like within these like partner like kink or BDSM kinds of interactions, it is a higher risk one, which, you know, you've had, you know, folks on over the years who, um, you know, like our dominatrices, for example, and we'll say, I will not do this, right? This is something I won't do because it's so much higher risk than other things people ask me to do. And I draw a line here. And so I think, you know, that's really important. I think young people are, um, you know, you've also, I think really helps people to think over there is like what sex and what's like Olympic level sex. And, you know, I think even around consent related to choking, it's one thing to say, well, they asked me to choke them or, you know, they, you know, or they wanted to be choked. It was fine. They liked it, whatever. But I think the con the consent conversations about choking just require a lot more like knowledge and sophistication than some other things. For example, some of the people we've interviewed have said, you know, I like to be choked, but I didn't expect to be choked that hard. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was scary for me. Like I, you know, that, they generally were used to light choking and then somebody who they hooked up with choked them in a really, really intense way. Um, some people, you know, a lot of people that we've um, engaged with in our research have talked about um, being choked with two hands as feeling so different than being choked by one and two being really scary. We've had, you know, so strangulation research, like in, in other contexts, like intimate partner violence, it's really well known that use of ligatures, so like belts and cords and ties is just higher risk at greater consequences than hands. And we're finding the same thing with, you know, with our research on choking during sex. And so we also have a lot of young people just saying, well, you know, like, let's try a belt, right? Or let's try a cord. And that's a lot more dangerous. And so 
You know, so things like greater intensity is more dangerous. Ligature use is more dangerous. Doing it repeatedly is more dangerous. I don't think we have a good like harm reduction approach to this yet. I was just going to say the harm reduction was just in my head. Like, is there a harm reduction approach to this kind of breath play or choking, strangulation? We think about it. I I think think when we get there, if we get there, it will be like, it will look like something like this, right? It will look like something like, no matter how you choke slash strangle somebody, because it is strangulation, we just have to admit that, even if it makes people uncomfortable, no matter how you choke or strangle somebody, there will always be some, you know, at least small, but some level of, of risk of death. And that could be higher or lower based on their health history. Like if they've got a history of seizures. I mean, how would you know in a first time hookup? Also, to the caller's point, something else you might not know in a first time hookup is whether that person that you're with has a history of abuse. Yes. That's not something people generally disclose to a brand new sex partner, particularly if it's like a hookup on Tinder or some app. And if you like bust that sexy choking move out and that person was in a domestic violence situation with an abusive partner who choked them, you could really traumatize that person Mm -hmm. unintentionally and maybe naively without any malicious intent because you've seen it in porn and you're young and inexperienced and you think this is what's something that people just generally like and that turns women on because that's what's been shown to you. And then you wind up wrapping your hands around the throat of somebody who just like panics or shuts down or you ruin them for like, they have to go back to therapy for another two years before they can be naked with another human being again. Yeah. And if, unless you're an, a selfish asshole and most people aren't, you're not going to want to even accidentally do that to someone. Even if the chance of that happening is very low, the consequences are so great that you just, you don't want to be that person. You don't. And, you know, and, and I know I've been talking a lot about women here um, because so much of my research has focused on women's health over the years. But I will say, right, I mean, we are looking at people of all genders in our research, all sexual identities. Um, it is certainly more common for women and, you know, gender non-binary and transgender folks to report having been choked. Um, choking is also just generally more common among, you know, gay and bisexual identified individuals. So, you know, the ones who are choked the least, you know, are like straight cisgender men who are generally going to be chokers and not chokies. Um, but we've had straight men, too, who have had, you know, partners just choke them and who have triggered some some trauma, either from prior sexual abuse or even just like physical assault growing up. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, kids beating them up and stuff. So, you know, whoever your partner is, whether, you know, whatever their gender or sexual identity yeah, it's not as it's just not as easy as like, you know, do you want to be choked or can you choke me? Yes or no. You know, there are what we're finding, yeah, it's it's histories of trauma, health related histories, you know, things like, well, how, right? Like sort of what intensity? Um, you know, what um, you know, with what, right? One or more hands. I mean, I still think like everybody still has to know there is a risk of death. And even if it's consensual, if you hurt somebody and they are injured or go into a coma or they die, like, it's like you said, Dan, like, you know, you'll be held responsible. And so like there are right now in multiple countries that I'm aware of, like young men um, who are, you know, serving sentences for having, you know, and, you know, they say unintentionally killed their partner. And it is, I say, they say only because these cases do get very complicated about, you know, if somebody is dead, right. If the person has died about figuring out, 
yeah. whether it was intentional been, or not. And there have been some cases where people have mounted defenses, guys who've killed women, mm-hmm. girls, have mounted defenses claiming that it was consensual choking. And in a context where there's a lot of this going on, it's hard for the prosecution to knock that down. And yeah. yet it's hard for everyone to figure out. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Like everybody understands you just don't like go for it with anal. We just got to get to a place where Most everybody understands you just don't go for it with choking for it. and bearing in mind that there's a risk of death. Years ago, like at least a decade ago on this show, I recommended that if what you're into is a little bit of breath play, I know it looks more extreme, but a gas mask with the hose removed where you put your hand over the intake when that person needs air, they just have to shake their head a little bit and it's going to break the seal. And there's nothing, no hands around the neck. You're still getting that little deprivation of oxygen. It looks like a little crazier. So some people think that's kinkier, but it's actually a lot less risky. And if that's the effect you're going for, but uh, like, I, I don't, you know, I, I sound a little despairing of this and I am because like I'm a 50 something gay dude. And my experience of this has been like, Younger guys want this. Yeah. Younger guys mm-hmm. will initiate this. Mm-hmm. Not by joking me, but by like I said earlier, putting my hands around their own around their throat without any discussion. And it kind of freaks me out. Like I don't want to disappoint somebody in the moment, but I also don't want to kill somebody in the moment. Right. So it's not just that you don't choke other people like without talking about it, but you also don't you know, spring it on somebody to ask to be choked because we have, yeah, we've had like a lot of young men in particular who are like, whoa, you know, like we were in the middle of sex and they just like grabbed my hand and put on their neck and, and, you know, it just ruins the moment for some of them too. Cause they're like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to hurt somebody. Um, I don't want to accidentally kill somebody. There's so much going on in that moment. Like yeah. the woman <laughs> thinking that going to give him permission to do what I think he wants to do because I've seen it in porn or maybe she likes it. And, you know, we always talk about like what guys see in porn, guys want to do. But sometimes guys see something in porn or their partners have seen something in porn and the guy doesn't really want to do it. And the expectations that, you know, that porn can create and the anxieties that it can create aren't just for women. Like some guys don't want to do what they've seen in porn any more than women want to do what they've seen being done to women in porn. And that's why people have to use their fucking words and talk about what they want and who they are and what turns them on and what's safe and what they're up for. Just like the people do in porn before the cameras start rolling. So yeah, (laughs) it's a big issue. And as you know, I'm obsessed and we can talk about it anytime you want. <laughs> Dr. Debbie Herbatic, professor at Indiana University School of Public Health. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone for another choking update. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Hey, Dan. I've been with my boyfriend for five years. He's 45. I'm 33. And our sex life has gone to shit since the pandemic. His libido is really tanked. And I totally get that. The stress and depression and anxiety but we went from having sex maybe once a week to once a month. And even that, it's a little bit like pulling teeth. Um, His erections are very fleeting and it can go soft pretty quickly. So we basically just have to like do the same positions that we know work and uh, 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 super, super fast just so that we can both get off and then it's done, which is a bummer. And he, you know, he offers to go down on me whenever I want, which is great. And I appreciate that, but I do miss being able to have a different kind of sex, try new positions, different speeds. And I'm wondering, is it like 
morally okay to suggest maybe ED meds or something? Because I, you know, I super don't want to make him more self-conscious about it. And it's, you know, it's, I don't know if it's considered ED, if it just, if you can only do a certain number of styles or positions without going soft. He's definitely had moments when we've been together where he couldn't get it up at all. So I really don't want to get him in his head about that. But you know, we used to have sex with other people too before the pandemic. And so that kind of kept it fresh and it didn't really bother me necessarily that we had, you know, a certain kind of very vigorous sex. But, um, but now that we're only sleeping with each other and we only sleep with each other once in a while, I guess I just feel like, damn, I really wish we could like draw it out a little more and play around and, and not feel like we're on the clock of like, oh my God, we got to finish before the it clock strikes midnight and the erection disappears. Um, you know, he also has high blood pressure and thyroid issues and he takes medication for that. So I don't know if ED meds are even a good idea in that context, but, um, but I guess I'm just wondering, like as his girlfriend, we're five years in, is it the kind of thing one can suggest, or am I being weird and coercive? Like, you know, he doesn't want to have sex. Life is shit. I want to be understanding. And I'm still super hot. It's not, you know, I'm not taking it personally that he's going soft around me. Um, and I'm doing my best to get him into it. But I, it's, you know, and he always tells me it's not me. But yeah, I just, I guess I just feel like if we're the only people we're going to have sex with, is there a way to make this better? A thyroid condition can negatively impact somebody's libido, can also contribute to erectile dysfunction. Could just be the pandemic that tanked your partner's libido. It has had that effect on a lot of people, or it could be a worsening of his thyroid condition. If it's been a while since he's seen a doctor about it, I would recommend he talk to a doctor, not a podcaster. That said, seems to me that you're putting a lot of pressure on your boyfriend's erections at a time that his erections have been elusive and at a time that maybe sex represents for him a kind of loss. You say that you used to have sex with other people, multiple partners, and that's been off the table during the pandemic. You guys have behaved responsibly, good for you, during the pandemic. And so maybe sex for your boyfriend right now isn't joyful because not, not because you guys aren't connected anymore, not because he doesn't love you, but an important part of how you two connected is gone if you used to connect through group sex and uh, sex with other partners. That said, you definitely, your attitude towards his erections does seem to be part of the problem here. You say you want to have different kinds of sex, you want to try new positions, you want to try different speeds, but all of that in your framing is contingent on him being hard and staying hard the entire time you're trying out new kinds of sex, new positions and different speeds, excuse me, get some sex toys. Sex toys literally, you know, the right kind, the kind that plug into the wall or have batteries, have speed settings. You could be trying out different speeds right now while taking the pressure off him to have an erection. You've probably gotten into his head. He's probably gotten into his head. He's failed a few times. And now he's afraid of having sex or initiating sex or agreeing to sex for fear of failing. And that is just poison for an erection. It is kryptonite. So the best way to get back to being sexual together and for it to feel joyful and less stressful is just to take PIV off 
the table for now. Get some sex toys. Even if, you know, his ego can handle it and some guys can't, get a fucking strap on and let him go to town on you with a big old fucking never get soft dildo. That's a big lift for some guys. Some guys can't get there. So other toys, other kinds of toys, non-PIV sex, agreeing like for the next three or four times that you guys have sex together. I don't want to define this as not sex. This is sex. You masturbate together. You're just going to masturbate together. You're going to lay together and jack off together. You're going to masturbate. He's going to masturbate. Maybe you'll roll around a little bit. And the trick is then in advance of those masturbatory sessions, not to regard an erection if he gets one as an opportunity to jump on his dick. It's just off the table. PIV off the table. Just enjoy orgasm, release, let him see you, see him get hard and get off. That will help build his confidence back up. And then after three or four times, you know, hopefully not three or four months, because it would be great if you guys could start doing this more than once a month, and maybe you would if there was less pressure on him. Then when you have a masturbatory session, when you're doing mutual masturbation and when he's hard, if he wants to upgrade to PIV, okay, he can. But have some toys nearby so that if his erection suddenly abandons him, that you can shift, you can pivot effortlessly and seamlessly to other kinds of sex play that is still arousing and still sexy and still hot. And then if his erection comes back, you can pivot just as seamlessly back to PIV. The key here is to take the pressure off him. Might help also if you could articulate together and grieve together what you've lost in the pandemic, these sexual connections with other people that help fuel your connection with each other, and then incorporate into just your masturbatory sessions right out of the gate some dirty talk about all the good times and all the hot sex you're going to have once we're behind this pandemic or once this pandemic is behind us with other people. Since that was something that worked for you in the past, you can make it work for you right now when it's just the two of you by talking about it. But so long as you go into partnered sex, so long as you go into sex with him with the attitude that you're not going to be able to draw it out a little more because he's going to lose his erection and you can't keep having sex after he loses his erection. You're not going to be able to play around because he might lose his erection and you're going to have to rush before the clock strikes midnight and he loses his erection. So long as that's what you're bringing to the table, so long as he sees that in your eyes, yeah, you might as well be injecting kryptonite directly into his dick. You can draw it out. You can play around. You can take your time and not rush and have great sex, whether he has an erection or not. That's the attitude you have to take. We're going to have sex. It's going to be hot sex. We're going to masturbate together. We're going to get some toys. We're going to play. You're going to see that erection or no erection. You can still get me off and satisfy me. If that gives him a big sad, if he has feels about that, if he feels like toys or sex play that isn't PIV is just emphasizing his failure, well then, A, it's not a failure, and B, that's something that he's going to have to work through and get past and grieve. But if you go to him with the attitude that you want to be with him, be intimate with him, you want to sit the fuck down on his face and grind your pussy into his face while you play with your clit and a vibrator until you come and that's partnered sex and that's good sex and it's hot sex that you would enjoy and that he 
can give to you right now without even taking his fucking pants off, you're likelier to begin to rebuild your sexual connection, reinstill a sense of sexual confidence in him, and get back to really enjoying each other. All that said, he does need to go to the doctor, get that thyroid condition checked out, and ask his doctor if ED meds, which are great and he should take if they help, would interact with the medications he might already be on for his thyroid condition. Hi, Dan. I have a New Year's Eve debacle I'd like to ask you a question about. I've been seeing a man for seven months. He practices non-hierarchical polyamory. He's married and has another girlfriend that he's had for nine years. He also practices kitchen table poly. So I've been over to his house and met his wife on several occasions. She's lovely. And then he and I usually go off, well, always have gone off and had our night together in the spare bedroom without her. I came over New Year's Eve. They were hanging out. I was there about 1.30. It had been clear that I was coming over and he was excited about it several times through several texts. When I got there, she and I hang out, hung out for a while and then she went to bed and then he came over and started making out with me. He said, what should we do? And I said, well, let's go to the bedroom and do some more of this. And he said, well, my wife doesn't want us to have a date night tonight. She wants to reserve that for her. Mic drop. That, there was no indication of this before. He didn't tell me anything about it. Had he had told me about it, I probably wouldn't have driven after my party at 1.30 in the morning to his house and wanted to stay over. There was no agency at all. I got really sad, feeling like our non-hierarchical thing was actually quite hierarchical and went to bed he didn't really apologize. We haven't talked since. I got up in the morning and left. He hasn't even texted me to find out if I got home okay. So I don't know. I'm feeling really like this is not the relationship I thought it was. And yet I'd like to have a conversation about it. I guess I have to be the adult in the room to text him and say, can we have a conversation? But he's usually really good about that. It's just been radio silence from him now. What do you think I should do? All right. I, I feel you on the one hand, you know, your boyfriend having a wife, that seems pretty hierarchical and the wife having veto power or control over who he sleeps with and when that seems pretty hierarchical too. But I got to say, you know, here's a guy with a wife, a girlfriend, another girlfriend, how do you determine whose turn it is at some point, somebody I guess calls dibs or he prioritizes someone over someone else. How does he avoid, how do you avoid that sort of conflict? So this could be evidence of, you know, the relationship being more hierarchical, his and his wife's relationship being more hierarchical and the relationship you were in being more hierarchical than he led you to believe at the outset. Or it could just be that his wife said, Hey, I want it. And he promised it to her. And then, you came over and he had to let you know that he could only bust one nut in that seven or eight, 12 hour period. And it was hers. Maybe if you'd called dibs first, it would have been yours, but you won't know that unless you talk to him about what the fuck went on. And so, yeah, you should give him a call and be the adult in the room, I guess, and have that conversation and ask for some clarity about what the relationship actually is. And 
you know, I, I'm sorry, like a relationship can be non-hierarchical. A poly relationship can be non-hierarchical. But, you know, when it's one guy and multiple women, a line is going to form. And not being able to jump the line doesn't mean the relationship is hierarchical or you are lower in the pecking order. So get some clarity about what's going on here. Does his wife have veto power? Does she get to call in the dick or call dibs on the dick when she wants it? And, you know, if the dick's been promised to one of his other girlfriends, too bad. She, as wife, gets the D at that moment. Okay, well, if that's the case and you don't want to be in a relationship like that, if you don't want to be lower in the dicking order, then exit this relationship and you can yell and scream at him a little bit on the way out for misleading you about what the relationship was, about the fact that his wife did take precedence, was his primary partner. But if it was just an issue of having to balance the needs and demands and wants of three equal partners in that moment, can you see how you might have lost out? Can you wrap your head around a circumstance where the D was going somewhere that night, but it wasn't going to you and therefore maybe he shouldn't have let you drive over at one thirty in the morning. Cause there's only one thing somebody drives to someone's house at one thirty in the morning for on new year's day. And that's Dick. And if the Dick wasn't available for sitting on because the wife had called dibs, he should have let you know that before you took the risk of driving over at one thirty in the morning on new year's Eve. That is a dangerous time of day to get in a car, even if you were sober, lots of other drivers on the street at that moment are not. So arguably, he let you risk your life for dick that you weren't going to get. Hmm. Not a good look heading into 2022. Oh, and quickly, even if he couldn't have come through with the dick, even if the wife in a non-hierarchical fashion had called dibs on the dick that night or for that 12 or 24 hour period, however long this guy's refractory period takes, he could have come through and you could have joyfully settled for oral or mutual masturbation just because you couldn't get the D or he had to save the D for one of his other partners doesn't mean you two couldn't have had sex. Sounds like in addition to a lack of clarity about exactly how his relationships, these poly non-hierarchical kitchen sink poly relationships work, you guys may have been operating under the assumption or with the narrow definition of sex being just PIV, a busy guy with three girlfriends or two girlfriends and a wife. Yeah, he's going to need to uh, maybe come through with some other kinds of sex when his uh, D is called for and or exhausted. All right, before we get to listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Some people listen to the Lovecast because I give good sex advice. At Mistress Dovey tweets, I see lots of lovely people on my timeline going through personal and relationship changes and challenges. And if you aren't already listening to at Fake Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast, you should start ASAP, Invaluable Advice, Discussion of Sexuality, Gender, and All Kinds of Relationships. Thank you, Mistress Dovey, for the really nice endorsement. Others listen to the Lovecast because apparently I put cats to sleep. Philip C. Matthews tweets at Fake Dan Savage, thank you for your continually good advice. And now for your sultry voice. My wife and I had a five-hour drive home to Chicago with our two cats, and the only thing that would make them stop crying was putting on the Savage Lovecast. We are four fans for life. You are welcome, Philip Matthews. I had no idea that I was a 
cat narcotic and reverend rotation tweets dear at fake dan savage if an incel is someone who is involuntarily celibate wants to get laid but can't what word describes people who perhaps related to past sexual trauma are voluntarily and intentionally celibate v-cell well of course my heart goes out to anyone out there who is celibate because of past sexual trauma uh, that said, I think celibate implies that someone has made the choice to be celibate, that they've opted in to celibacy. That's why we qualify celibate in the case of people who are celibate, but would rather not be with the word involuntary. So I don't think we need to further qualify the word celibate. All right. Thanks to everybody who tweeted about the show or posted to Instagram about the show or Facebook or any other social media. We really appreciate everybody who helps to spread the word about the Savage Lovecast. Word of mouth, word of social media is the best advertising. And if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now listener response calls. This is a uh, comment in response to uh, the question on episode 793 uh, with the woman whose boyfriend doesn't want kids. I'm a uh, couple therapist and I've worked with this situation a few times. And I think that looking at the meaning that's tied to your respective stances might be a good idea. Uh, what I mean by that is basically looking at, okay, I want kids. Why do I want kids? What meaning does having kids hold for me? And the same thing for your partner. Why does he not want to have kids? Sometimes when that kind of stuff is explored, it opens up the possibility for negotiation where there might not otherwise be room for negotiation. So let's say your partner doesn't want kids because he's afraid of not feeling free to travel with his partner or whatever it might be. Um, that's a lot more flexible than just not wanting kids. Uh, you can travel and be a parent, uh, and that can just be a need that you all prioritize. Same thing goes in the other direction. Maybe you want kids because you want someone to love and care for and nurture and raise, and maybe there are young people in your family that you can pour that energy into, and maybe you don't have to be a parent yourself. Those are just possibilities. It could be that you do have very different ideas of where you want your life to go, but I just wanted to offer that suggestion and the two of you have some room to work things out because it sounds like the two of you care about each other a lot. A response call for the woman whose absolute shit boyfriend made that comment about her boobs. I honestly don't even think he feels that way about your boobs. I bet you he's got some insecurity of his own and in a totally crap power move, he had to make it about you because he doesn't want to face whatever it is that he doesn't like about himself because why else would he even still be having any type of sex with you and who the fuck would say something like that so absolutely his own issue but after you dump the motherfucker already how do you move past it i also used to really hate my boobs and i found a way to love them through two things that really worked for me Number one, I started masturbating in front of the mirror, grabbing them, telling myself how hot they were. And number two, if you have a specific thing about your boobs that you don't like, what I did is I went on a porn site, I searched that specific phrase, I bet you you'll find porn where that's highlighted, and just watching how hot the people still are and seeing how many people wanted that by the fact that there's even a titled video about it. Uh, can also be a good way to just remind yourself that your body is beautiful. Hi, Dan. Just calling in response to the caller on episode 793. 
who said she feels often repulsed after she's had sex with her partners, no matter how fondly she feels of them. I used to feel similar to this when I was younger. And turns out the reasoning for that was that I was gay all along. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about something I said on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and comments is to use the voice memo app on your phone record your question or comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com you can also call us at 206-302-2064 old school we prefer those voice memos though better sound quality still we love your questions and your comments however you choose to get them to us and just a reminder to get us your cuck questions in time for cuck week at the end of the month to learn more about cuck week you can follow at cuck week on twitter Tickets for the opening weekends of the Hump 2022 Film Festival are on sale now, the initial run of the festival. You can first check out all the new films and cast your vote for the Hump Awards. We'll be screening in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Olympia at the end of January through the beginning of March, and then touring the country. And as a special gift, every purchase of a Hump ticket for the opening weekends comes with a free one-month Magnum subscription. So go to humpfilmfest.com right now and get your tickets and your Magnum sub today. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Debbie Herbenick on Twitter at Debbie Herbenick. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading. Hold up. 